0: I want to give you a summary of last week's letter to the church, and ready, La Dikaya. We often say Laodicea, uh, but we learned last week that it's pronounced La Dikaya, which just seems a bit uppity, and it fits well because it was a city that was incredibly wealthy, but also uh, spent time kind of thinking um, small, even though they had a lot, and they got in trouble. So I want to do a modern summary of the letter to the church by giving some things uh, of today that they kind of collide. So I would say this. This is a city in 60 A.D., Laodicea that lost everything because there was an earthquake in 60 A.D. or C.E., common era, and it destroyed the city, but the city rebuilt, regained and rebuilt from their own wealth, and they did that. And so they had all kinds of stuff, and they rebuilt, and they were powerful, but they thought with a scarcity mindset, and so they were not generous, and then they always thought, I think things are going to go bad. Now, I say that because, did you know that over the last two years, during the pandemic, 80% of the, you know, unemployment, a lot of people lost their jobs, we're at a point now that 80% of the jobs that were lost during the pandemic have been regained, 80% of the jobs have been regained. Uh, Unemployment is at 4%, down to 4%. American workers are currently making more than they ever have in the history of our country and are spending more. The survey's been doing We're spending more money than we ever have in the history of our country. And ready? Get this. 68% of Americans think the economy is terrible and getting worse. Why? Those are completely opposite things what I just said. Why do people think that things are getting bad? Uh, Because one, we cannot get everything we want when we want it. Some things are on back order right now. So I want that sweater and I want it in blue and it tells me that it's on back order and I can't get it for three months. My mind goes, well, apparently the economy stinks. This is what is happening. Uh, There are some shipping things that are an issue right now in manufacturing. Gas prices are up and car prices are up. And these are things that are before us every day when we leave our house and we see gas prices up. So we start to think, "Uh uh-oh, things aren't good. Do you know the fastest growing pay wages are for the jobs we see on yard signs everywhere? We're hiring. They're the fastest-growing pay wages that are pleading for people to come and work. Now, here's the thing. The service industry is a lot of it, retail and restaurants. And you know what these people are saying? It is, quote, not worth a couple bucks more an hour to be treated the way we are treated by uh, by customers. Huh. So we think the economy is in in a rough place. But the reality says otherwise. And so that letter last week, maybe you want to go back and listen, might be just a little bit of a needle into our reality today. Good times. We're going to keep moving because we got a letter to jump into this morning. Um, and, And I say all that because the idea of what we'll get into is the Shema, is to love God and love our neighbor, is needed now more than ever. Because people are feeling on edge. People are feeling mistreated, not heard, not seen, and people are feeling lonelier than ever. And so what it looks like for us to tangibly love God is to love our neighbor, to see the person right in front of us and to pay attention to them and to love them. That's practical. It's what it means to be the church. It's not an intellectual assent, but it's a real way of living. So I would invite you, if you can, to stand with me and let's say the Shema together, and then we will jump into our letter for today. Let's begin in the Hebrew. So repeat after me. Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Ve'ahafta. Adonai, Ichad. Adonai, Ichad. Veya hafta. Veya hafta. Et Adonai Elohecha, b'chol, levavka, uvachol, navshika, uvachol, meodecha, ve'ahavta, lereyacha kamocha, amin. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, love the Lord your God, with all your, heart, all your heart, and with all your soul, your soul. and with all your might. And, your might. and love, your love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. May that be true of us today. You may be seated. We've come to the second to the last week in our series uh, called Revelation, a letter to the church. Second to last week. And uh, I just want to do a quick recap by just saying, when we say revelation, when we get into this letter, the second word in the letter is the English word revelation. And in the original Greek, the word is apokalypsis. Go ahead and say apokalypsis, And that word means an unveiling, a laying bare to make known. So when we begin this letter, it begins with the idea that it is Actually pulling the curtain and showing you what is. Because a lot of times people come to Revelation and say, oh, it's a mystery. We have no idea. It's, it certainly can be confusing, but it's not hidden. It's actually unveiled. And so we ask, well, what is being made known? And what is being made known is that Jesus is Lord. That is what John is communicating in his letter. Jesus is Lord. And we can hear that and go, how was that a mystery? In that time, and when we dig into the context, it was because these people lived under the boot of the Roman Empire. And so the emperor was Lord. That's what was one of the things. Caesar is Lord. That was a dominant theme. They had all of these pagan gods and goddesses in which they bowed down to and worshipped. And so the idea that Jesus is Lord was actually very, very dicey to name it, to be it, to live into that. So that's what's going on here, just to make that known. And then we ask the question, well, who is this letter being written to and who is it from? It's a letter written to seven churches located in Asia Minor, what we know as Western Turkey. The author is John also known as John the Seer or John the Prophet. He has several visions in the letter, several visions um, that he sees and hears the risen Christ, Jesus, and then what he does is he writes down what he sees and what he hears, and he does it in a literary form known as apocalyptic. It's a kind of genre. It's a way in which you write. And what that uses is heavy symbolism, and metaphor. That's why it's confusing to us, because we're linear, logical, just tell me how it is. And so when you get into poetry and imagery, and some of us go, "I, I don't think in blue. I don't think in red. I think in bullet points. So when we start painting pictures is what John is doing, some of us get a little bit lost, so we need context. So when John starts speaking into like all things, and then what we would say is the eternal. When we start talking about that, it's not a message, and this is big for us, revelation is not a message of destruction. It's a message of restoration. This thing is heading towards the restoration of all things. So when we think of fire, it's not about destroying, it's about refining. And that we really, really need to hear. They're talking about the flames of heaven. How many of us go, oh, heaven, yeah, flames? Which are about refining, though. That's the thing. It's really important. It's not about destroying. It's about restoring. So now, seven letters. uh, We go into this Asia Minor, and so we get to where these all are. Here are seven churches in uh, Asia Minor, uh, we began with Ephesus. We will get to Smyrna and Philadelphia. We're going to put those two together next week. Uh, and, and don't worry, I think it'll be the shortest one uh, for my work. I'm, I'm trying because I want to have some Q and R, question and response time, through this whole letter next week. So we'll, we'll get through it. I can do it, I promise. Um, Pergamum, we're going to be in Thyatira this morning. Sardis, we looked at. And then Ladikaye, or uh, we often say Laodicea because we're English. Uh, But it's actually Ladikaye, which is a good time. So um, we're going to move inland. So you see where Thyatira is? We go inland. I think there's another map that kind of highlights it. Yeah, there we go. uh, Map I got from my Turkey trip. And so... um, we went into Thyatira, it's inland, it's uh, situated in, in, in what is a kind of path through. Now, this is the fourth letter, if you are reading in Revelation, it's the fourth letter, so it's right in the middle. Here's the thing, this is actually the longest letter out of the seven letters, this is the longest one, ready? To the smallest city. This is the smallest city out of the seven cities, yet it gets the longest letter. Now, I only took a few pictures uh, when I was there, and you'll see why. Here's the first picture. Actually, in Thyatira, the modern city, there's a park that is like just kind of walled off, and there's just this little bit of excavation because they built the modern city today over and among the old cities, so it's over top of it, so you actually have this modern city, and there's very little that they've been able to excavate, because they would have to destroy the city, so they're not going to do that, so I have this picture that I show you, you get to see some of the ancient ruins, but then also I I did this little video, just to give you an idea, we're like kind of in this park, so I think, uh, is the next one a video, yeah, here you go, you just see, they, they have it fenced off, and it's really interesting. And you're in the midst of like this modern city, and then you have walled off, and you have these ancient, very ancient ruins. And, and that's kind of what you get today when it comes to Thyatira. Yeah, there we go. Um, Hi, guys. Uh, some of our peoples on our trip. Um, that's, that's what you get when you come to that. Now, we have to dig into context. And whoo when we get into context and watch this letter pop today. So, when it comes to context, around 282 BCE, before Common Era BC, Thyatira became the eastern flank of Seleucus I, his kingdom. He refounded it as a military outpost. Thyatira means the citadel or castle of Thyatira. That's what the word means, because it was a military outpost. In 133 BCE, Thyatira succumbs to the rule of Rome, which made way for the city to experience some peace and prosperity. Now, really important here. This is a dysfunctional peace, one that was enacted by the sword. By military intimidation, this is how they go, we'll puff up our chest and we'll enact Rome, we'll enact military force, and now we experience peace because everyone is scared. That's a dysfunctional peace because to quote our rabbi and savior, those who live by the sword die by the sword. They are now enslaved by what works. When people ask, does it work? Does military, puff up our chest, I have bigger guns, and now you bow down to me, does that work? That's not the question followers of Jesus are to ask. It's a bad question. Does it work? A better question is, does it emulate and embody Christ? It's a different question. We can win in all sorts of ways if you think of winning. But our question is, does it work? Our question is, does it embody Christ? A little feisty this morning. They experience a shallow version of prosperity, which is an economy built on empirical values, which often leads becoming addicted to those very values and ways. They built an economy that was very empire-driven, and then they became addicted to to those empirical ways. Thyatira is the smallest of cities, 25,000 people in the first century Asia Minor, 25,000 in population, major inland city known as a pass-through, making it difficult to defend. It was a military outpost, but it, usually the places that are easier, that sit up high, this is just an inland road, it's flat, it's very difficult then to defend, but it become an incredible commercial center. Now here's, we're going to have some fun. There have been more trade guilds found in Thyatira than any other contemporary city in the Roman province of Asia. More trade guilds. And each guild had a patron deity, and all proceedings and, and feasts began by honoring and paying homage to that god or goddess. So, we're gonna get into that. Thyatira has been and excavated, has been found to have wool workers, tanners, leather workers, linen weavers, bakers, shoemakers, and coppersmiths, with the city becoming world renowned, though, for their really key bronze smelters and textile dyers. A taproot known as matter root grows and still to this day grows in Thyatira and from which they extract, what they extract from that makes a purple dye for rugs and clothing and all of that. uh, Purple dye, known today, we call it Turkish red. This dye still comes from Thyatira. Purple in the ancient world at that time was a sign of high rank or royalty because of the high cost involved in obtaining the dye. Now, this unique niche created a massive trade for this little town as people would travel from all over the known world to acquire it. Thyatira then minted bronze coins, this is my favorite, I love this, this bronze coin to uh, commemorate their two strongest commodities, bronze and matter root for the dying. So what you have in this is a tree and then they, they cut it off and down below, that was in bronze, they did roots, to show we have a matter root. And so the two biggest things are cop- or bronze and this root for dying. And this is really important. This leads to a biblical hyperlink. That's what we'll call it, a biblical hyperlink. When you learn about the city, and it takes us to a place in the Bible in Acts chapter 16 that helps us to understand a little bit of what this looks like then. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 16 where we meet a woman named Lydia. She from this little city of Thyatira. We read about her witness and her leadership within the missionary travels of the Apostle Paul. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. I think on the screen we start in verse 11. I want to start in verse 9 and I'll read it and it's okay and then you'll all catch up with me. Because it's really interesting how it begins, I find, within this whole thing. So beginning in verse 9, during the night Paul had a vision of a man... Of Macedonia, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul has a vision of a guy from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now we'll all join in here. From Troas, We put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district, big region of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of where? Thyatira named Lydia. And what was she? A dealer in what? Purple cloth. Yeah. She's tapped into the industry. She knows. She's from there. And she's a dealer in purple cloth. That's so fun. Whatever that is. She was a worshiper of God the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Such A fantastic, so I think we have a map though, we'll go up. So you can see, I circled where Thyatira would be on the map. So Thyatira and they went up to Philippi, or or, sorry, Lydia did. If she's from there, she went over there. Really interesting, and that's what we're going to dig into, but you can see uh, Troas, where they launched from, Paul and his crew there, Samothrace on the way to Philippi and that whole region of Macedonia. Philippi is the central city, and it was Roman colony, which means the Caesar had Roman soldiers retire there to populate the area so that it could be under Roman rule. They had Roman soldiers retire there so they can hold authority. Now we find Lydia there, and I love Lydia's story. I love this lady's life. It seems she is very successful in business, shown by her moving about Philippi, then having the means to host the church party at her house. She's like, I need you to come to my home, and and we're going to have a party for the church, which is the launching of a church in Philippi at Lydia's home. The text alludes to her being the breadwinner for her family, which is rare in a patriarchal society. She's running things. Do you catch that? It's her household. Come to her home. You don't say that in the first century. It's his. It's hers. Ooh, Lydia's got something going on. Love it. She was a worshiper of God, but yet then the Lord opened her heart to Paul's message for her to take the next step in her faith. Now, this interaction shows her leveraging her resources to host and become a leader of the church in Philippi, and we all said, go on, Lydia. This story raises a very, very important question. Why is she in Philippi and not at the center, the hub of the purple dye trade? She could do way better, probably, is understanding very much the way it would be if she was in Thyatira. Why is she in Philippi? For that, we need to dig into the details and the context surrounding the trade guilds. So the guilds, you have a trade guild. It's kind of like a union that's the way these things would be. They all centered around big banquets that they would hold, and they held these in pagan temples. They had have these big banquets, and they had them in the temples. They began with a fellowship meal with the food dedicated, sacrificed to idols. So they would sacrifice the food to idols, then they would all gather it up, and they would eat it. Throughout the meal, servants would bring giant bowls of wine around to everyone, which led to, uh uh-oh, kids, plug your ears, after dinner they would have orgies. And this took place on the couches in which they reclined. When you read in the scriptures that they were reclining at the table to eat, they didn't sit, they reclined, and so they had these couches. Um, And so they they would have, orgies would take place on these couches. That will be important later. But it was through participation in these ven- events that commercial and financial security was assured. This is how you got your brand out there. This is how you grew your clientele. You participated in these guilds, in these banquets. That's how you got, uh, I, oh, I, I need to get, the, they're a really big account. And so I need to go to the banquet and be able to uh, shake hands with them and other things, in order to, like, win them over. So I can be a major player in my guild, in our field. Which raises the question for a worshiper of Yahweh, do you continue to be a member of these guilds? Because this is the way you could expand and grow your business. It's how you gain social, political influence and status. This is the way to build your brand. And many scholars say that this is the reason why Lydia is in Philippi and not in Thyatira because she refuses to be a part of the guild. Now, I can't do that. That's compromise, and I will not do that. And so I will figure a different way. Come on. So the patron god of Thyatira, then, is the god Apollo. I think we have a picture. Um, Okay, so patron god of Thyatira was Apollo, who is the son of Zeus, so he was understood to be the son of God, known as the god of light, often associated with fire, and the god of what? The bronze trade. Interesting. Also the God who punishes wrongdoers and purifies penitents. He was the one who made men aware of their guilt and purified them of it. Really important that we hang on to this. So we have a picture of Apollo, the God Apollo. I think I have a picture that we put in there. Yep. Um, Was there another picture before that? Okay, we can put that up. It's fun. It's like a built-in joke. It's a different Apollo. That's, that's funny to me. That's why I put that in there. I plan jokes ahead of time so I can be funny. Okay, we'll head to the statue. Jeannie was like, I'm skipping. That's ridiculous. So this is the God. So this... Uh, <laughs> I don't blame you, Jeannie. Um, so, they, when they excavated number of statues, so this in Aphrodisias, and so the god Apollo, and there is a reason why there are things that they highlighted his feet, and the fact that these statues, if you always wonder why in the Greek, why are they in the nude? Nudity is divinity. That's how they associate it. To naked is to be divine, and then when they speak of feet, so we're gonna get there. But uh, they made bronze coins. Of Apollo and on him they said the son of God and then you can see on the backside he's in the naked because he's divine he is the son of God and they did this we're just going to take that much context and jump into our letter and that will already frame things Very, very much so. So let's go Revelation chapter 2 verse 18. To the angel or the messenger of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of what? Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like what? Burnished bronze. Very interesting. Now this is and we'll go. This is the only time in the book of Revelation that the, that the phrase Son of God is used. Only time in Revelation that Son of God is used, which is an invitation for us to be alert, like, oh, something must be going on. Why use that title when you're writing a letter to this church in this city? Unless the patron de- deity for the city is Apollo, who is the son of Zeus, the high god, so referred to as Son of... God, what is John doing here? And then the eyes of blazing fire would also push up against Apollo, along with being understood that the Roman emperor was the incarnation of Apollo, so he too referred to himself as son of God on earth. In the first century, to descriptively speak of someone's bare feet was a way of communicating the belief that this person is the divine, or is divine. Now, here's the fun part, too. The Greek word for burnished bronze, Greek word for burnished bronze is chalcybanyan. Chalcybanyan, which is identified as being a particular, particular type of bronze, which happened to be manufactured in the city of Thyatira. So when they use, when John uses that burnished bronze, he's using a very specific word to say, oh, yeah, created here. Context, 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 are you with me? So to begin this letter referring to Jesus as the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze would have been an affront to the state religion and more specifically, it would subvert those in Thyatira who are worshiping Apollo, the god of light and bronze. He's saying, "Uh uh-uh. I think not. Verse 19, I know your what? Deeds, really important word in this letter. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Church, well done. Your witness has been evident by how you love. Church, your witness is evident in how you love, your actions, your deeds. It reveals what your faith is. In fact, your most recent work, Well Done, is the best. It's the biggest that you have ever done before. You're persevering, church, in the midst of under the boot of empire. Well done, church. Verse 20. Nevertheless, Uh uh-oh, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Jezebel. Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, there is this understanding in apocalyptic literature is really important. John is metaphorically speaking, referencing a villainous woman from the Hebrew scriptures named Jezebel. You can read her story in 1 Kings and in 2 Kings. She is immortalized as the manipulative foreign wife of the Israelite king, Ahab. She used her royal influence to prop up her native Baal, Baal, cult, discredit and destroy the prophets of Israel, and lead the people to idolatrous ways. Apparently, now here's the fun part, there is a rival woman in Thyatira who is correspondingly influential and manipulative, just like this Jezebel. In a similar fashion, she, this woman in, in Thyatira, enticed and approved of followers of Jesus participating in the guild activities, understood as prostituting one's faith in Christ by participating in these things. She persuaded Christ believers to integrate themselves into the social, political, and economic life of the city, and thereby prosper from the connections they made that were ethically and morally compromising to their faith. That, of course, is just an ancient problem, correct? Awkward. By the time of the writing of Revelation to speak of Jezebel was to describe the actions of someone who participates in and leads others to participate in some pagan worship assemblies, the trade guild parties, and to give oneself to all sorts of sexual promiscuity. Now, contextually, this metaphor takes us to a famed prophetess found in Thyatira. Thyatira had a temple, a large temple, dedicated to Beeth, a prophetess who claimed, ready, to be the mouthpiece that is Oracle, the Oracle for the god Apollo. She encouraged participation, participation in the guilds and their parties, which centered around food sacrifices and lots of sex. Typically, you found the oracle in the temple of the deity you worshipped. Now, to get an idea of what this is like, I want to go to the city of Didyma in Asia Minor, where I went, just so you can see. This is a temple built to Apollo in Didyma, fifth largest temple in the ancient world. It took 500 years to build this temple older than our country. You think dedication to worship when you take 500 years to build a temple. 500 years just to get some size. Next picture. Sitting on the center. This thing was massive. And to walk around in this thing was unbelievable. Huge, massive thing. Now within that, out front of the temple is an altar. Next slide. Here's the altar out front. This is where you would sacrifice animals. You would give blood in order to get in the temple. People would come from all around the known world and they would come to once a year hear from the oracle. Tell me, and you get to ask the oracle one yes or no question type of thing. Will I have a good crop this year, oracle? And she would give her answer. But to get in, you had to sacrifice an animal costs money. So you do that. Next slide. This here is the oracle. Inside is within it would be a mini kind of temple within it. The oracle would be in there and you would get in line. You would come in and you could go to the oracle and ask a question. This is what that would look like. So they would do this and the Sambith was that oracle for the god Apollo. And so when when John is using Jezebel, he's speaking into what they knew very, very real to them in their city. Now, verse 21 and 22, we're going to continue in the text. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Those who follow in her ways and instructions are called to repent, to turn from their destructive ways. Notice also the prophetess herself has been invited to get off this wicked, destructive path. Really important. Really important. She's been given time and asked to repent, because this is, again, not the God of destruction, but rather invitation to restoration for everyone. Even this prophetess is invited to find her way back to the one true God. And the Greek word for bed, why I highlighted that, is kleine. Plane is the same word for couches that people lounge on at the guild feasts. Oh, that's the couch of suffering. That's where you'll fall on. In other words, what John just did is gave us a picture of lying in the bed that you made. You see that? Oh, no, no. Here's the thing. There are consequences for your action, as all John is saying here. You want to behave in this way? There are real, real consequences for those actions. This is a big deal because God is not soaring on the clouds, chucking lightning bolts at people while laughing at their destruction. This is, the actual language is God giving ample opportunity for all people to think anew how they are living and to turn from their chaotic and self-destructive ways, which of course has ripple effects in the world, correct? You are not just, well, it's my thing, I'll do my thing, none of your business, it doesn't affect you. Yes, yes it does. Your actions do affect me, thank you very much. We live in community, we live in a world in which how you behave will affect me, so we need to talk about that. Verse 23 of Revelation chapter 2, I will strike her children dead. Oh boy. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your what? Deeds. Now, this gruesome imagery is metaphorical. John is not speaking about literal children. He is speaking just as he's not talking about the literal historical Jezebel. That's important. What he's saying is he's speaking of referring to the offspring of her activities, those who follow in her ways. You are the offspring when you behave in ways that she does. So when you accommodate to the rule of Rome and the lordship of the emperor and all these pagan gods... These offspring emulate Jezebel's idolatrous ways and teach others to do so. And this is where I find the passage really fascinating. This is a warning to those who follow in the ways of Jezebel. They will experience a death of sorts. But death in the biblical narrative holds a deeper and wider meaning than we understand breathing and not breathing. It also depicts how one lives their life. You can bring about deadness and chaos by how you live. Or you can bring about goodness and health and joy. And he's like, that's what we're getting at. Are you with me? It's not just, oh, you'll die as and you'll stop breathing. You can make death happen or you can promote goodness and joy by how you live. Now, this phrasing, I am, where Jesus says in here, or John writes that Jesus says that I am, it's not he in the original language, it just says, I am who searches hearts. It's ego, I me, which Jesus equating himself to the I am of the Hebrew scriptures. The one who judges hearts and minds so you can see Proverbs 24:12, Jeremiah 11:20, and 17:10 and then Paul in the New Testament book of Romans 8:27 referencing here I am the I am. Yet that's further subversion of the god Apollo because remember he was understood he gets to be the one in charge of discipline and destruction and what Jesus is saying here is no no you don't. I'm in charge of discipline because these are my kids. I'm in charge of inviting people to the restoration of all things. Not you, Apollo. Jesus is about bringing restorative justice. Not punitive. It's not about, I'm going to get you. It's, I want to be with you, so will you turn from your ways. It's a very different picture. I put it this way. Um, Next slide. Oh, okay, we got that. All right, then I'll just say this. I don't know if it's in there or not. It's okay. To choose not to put to death slippery infidelity and hold a funeral for one's past is to plan a funeral for one's future. To choose not to put to death slippery infidelity and hold a funeral for one's past is to plan a funeral for one's future. I am inviting you to the funeral for my past, everyone. Afterwards, we're going to have a party and start beginning to dream about and cultivate a fresh future. We all, that's what repentance is. Would you participate in having a funeral for your past? That is no more who I am, and so I put it to death. It is now underground. It is no more of who I am. I am the I am's, and I will live that way. Are you with me? That's what repentance means. That is no more, and so I'm going to hold a funeral for my past. That is the invitation. Verse 24 and 25, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, the Jezebel, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come writing to a numerically small community that has rejected those ways of Jezebel, which is to emulate the Satan. We often really personalize this. Satan is an essence. It is an evil that gets in. And so it's saying, Don't go that way. When you go in this and you emulate these ways, you embody the essence of the deceiver and the accuser rather than embodying the ways of the Christ. To this group of people rejecting the off-course ways, Jesus is not asking anything additional than what they're already doing. Because they are holding strong and they are faithful to their witness of the love of Jesus. Verse 26 and 27. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like a pottery. That's Hebrew scriptures quote. Just as I have received authority from my Father. This speaks to the one who will forever rule. And Jesus says that this royal authority will also be shared with those who are victorious in Christ. Now that word victorious is the word Nikeo, which is the flying Nike goddess. And so again, it's in every letter, it says, no, 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 our victory is not found in that pagan goddess. Our victory is found in Christ Jesus. Even to a small group of people in a city of Thyatira. And it ends this way, verse 28 and 29. I will also give that one, the, the victorious one, the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let them shmah what the Spirit says to the churches. The Roman Empire, now get this, for the morning star, believed that the goddess Venus was the morning star. But here, and in Revelation 22, Jesus himself is claiming to hold the morning star. So once again, it's a subversion of empirical thinking. And it's calling a people to that which is alive and everlasting, not dead, static, done. Where are all these gods and goddesses? Where are all your emperors? They're dead. That's what the first Christians were saying. Hey, tell me where your Augustus is. Hey, where is your Tiberius? Hey, could you tell me where is your Claudius? Where is your Nero? Where is your Vespasian? You call them all gods. They're dead. Our Jesus lives. The morning star is understood to be at its brightest just before dawn. So, this statement can be interpreted. John is doing a picture of Jesus' followers that how we live is to be a flashing, brilliant neon sign that says the dawning of a new day is coming. The day in which love and faithfulness will reach their fulfillment or fullness. The day when Christ will establish his forever rule and reign over the entire universe. Now, in this letter to Thyatira, the word deed shows up five times. Five times the word deed shows up, which is about driving home the understanding that how we live is participating in bringing heaven to earth, right here in the present. Of course, because I would say it this way, what we do reveals what we believe. Man, in a world in which people are always saying, this is what I believe. You want to know what I believe? I'll I'll argue about it. You want to get in? You know what? We should have a debate, and I'll debate with you what I believe. No, no, no. All I need to do is see your life, and we can talk about what you believe. You can watch my life, and you can tell me what you think I believe, because you're probably going to see it in how I act, deeds, how I live. But we love in America to debate, and we love to argue all these theological concepts up in the sky. Yeah, what well, do you Oh, heretic, you can't say those words. How about heretic, you can't live that way? That's, that's off course. That would be a heresy. You said those things? To the Hebrew people, they were always saying it's up for grabs in order to think, wrestle with, intellect. But it's how you live. That's your belief. Some in Thyatira entertained the idea that God wants us to be happy and successful, which means accommodating to the way of empire in order to get ahead, to gain wealth, and to prosper. God would understand if we participate in the guilds, we got to make some money, got to pay the bills. I'm sure God wants us to be happy and successful, so participating in the guilds is fine. If we were to hold tight to fidelity in Christ, well, that would lead to discomfort. Well, that might be economically hard for us. And we might have other struggles. God wouldn't want us to have struggles or hardship, would he? So God would understand that we have to participate in the trade guilds, or otherwise our brand doesn't grow. And our status in society wouldn't be as high. Come on, Pastor Wally, everyone does it. I mean, this is all simply about pleasure, so don't be so uppity with your fidelity and covenant language to Jesus. I think God gets that right. This is an invitation to walk out the meta-movement of Scripture that is word, heard, to way, live. That is the movement of the biblical narrative. Word heard to way lived. You absorb the Christ speaking and you walk out the ways in your day to day, today, to day. Or to put it in recovery language, transformed behavior often begins with transformed stinking thinking. Christ, transform my stinking thinking so that I can live in the goodness and beauty that is you. Because we tend to live in shame and guilt and just spiral in our stinking thinking and chaos. And then guess what? We're going to walk it out. If we sit there and ruminate on that, do you know that they say 98% of our thinking is, 98% of our thinking is either in the past or in the future. Only 2% of our thinking is actually about right here and right now. We We spend all of our time thinking about what was and how bad and gross and bad and rough and off and whatever it may be, And then we go, oh, let's see, or tomorrow, oh boy, and we start stressing and worrying over tomorrow, which means we are not fully present and we're missing the person in front of us who is saying, will you see me? I cannot because I'm stuck back there or I'm trying to get there and you're in the way. Jesus meets us right here, right where we are, but he does not leave us here. There is a movement, a bend arc to the narrative. Our story is heading somewhere. And I would say it this way. Next slide, please. What we put our trust in shapes how we live, and how we live reveals what we believe. Are you with me? This is so important. What we put our trust in shapes how we live. What you live reveals what you believe. I trust in the Christ and then I will walk in the ways of Christ and then you will see what I believe. If I trust in the American dream, then I will try and walk out that and you will see what my whole way of being is. If I trust in money, if I trust in that relationship, this person... That's where my foundation is, rather than everything comes out of my trust in Christ. We can easily get comfortable with the ways of empire, thinking that crooked ways are simply normal. There were some in Thyatira who got comfortable with the ways of Jezebel, Sam Beeth, leading people away from true life. We can easily find ourselves tolerating, befriending, and surrendering to the chaos around us and within us. But there were also a church in Thyatira who found their identity, their strength, their purpose, their meaning in the person of Jesus the Christ. And we have the brilliant life of Lydia, the dealer in purple cloth, and how she helped launch and lead the church in Philippi, which offers us a powerful invitation to embody our trust of Jesus in the basic day-to-day moments of life. Lydia challenges us to consider how we go about our work and to take seriously our vocation. What is our vocation rooted in? And I use that word rooted intentionally. Is the company I work for, that I own, that I manage, rooted in life-giving and life-expanding practices? Am I asked at all to compromise my trust in the way of Jesus by working there? These are the tough questions I believe that are posed by the letter to the church in Thyatira. Did you know in October, in our country, more people quit their job than ever before? They did not quit. Just like, I'm done, I'll get. There was a reason. They stayed. They quit because something within the pandemic disrupted something in them that said, I cannot do this work anymore. I want meaning and purpose, and that wasn't doing it. I was just getting a paycheck. My first thought is I got to pay the bills, not what am I doing, how am I doing it, and what is it going toward. That was not the thinking. So more people quit than ever before. It's just jarring. This re- letter reveals how it's not about the numerical size of a community, but rather the ripple effect a community makes displaying the renewing, restoring, reconciling love of Jesus. This is a challenge, and I find it deeply encouraging because you, Walker Harbor, are not insignificant. Do you know how often people ask me about the church? Oh, tell me about your church. And then they say, how many people are there? How many people are there? And then when you say, I don't know, 70, 75, 100, and they go, oh, so a small church. (laughs) Come here. You meet John. You meet Marcia. You meet Sarah. You meet Linda. You meet Bruce. You meet Denny. You meet Chris. You meet them. No, 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 no. Don't you call my people these children of God who love God so brilliantly in the world. Don't call them small because you're dealing with these numbers. I'm talking about people who live this out. Please don't do that to this community. This is not a small church. This is how the way of Christ exploded in the beginning of the second century. As they said, we will not compromise to empire, we will faithfully live the way of Christ. And then at the beginning of the first century is when the word martus, martus, witness, witness, That word witness in the scriptures is martus. It's where we get the word martyr. And why we often equate martyr to death is because in the second century, people said, I will witness to the way of Christ. And people then of the empire said, then we will kill you. And they said, tough. It will not stop me. The movement will continue. And by the end of the second century, 90-plus percent of Asia Minor were followers of Jesus. How does that happen? Other than people say, I will stand firm in my witness to Christ. Call me small. Call the church small. When we bond together, when we rally 10, 3, 4, 2, or more, knitted in Christ... So the church will be. Where in my life, some questions I wrote down for myself, you can listen in on them. Where in my life do I stay quiet or hold back? Where in my life might there be compromise? How do do I embody and express a centered trust in Christ within my vocation? And if you think, well, you're a pastor. Yeah, you know what, though? You know what's really tempting in modern church world is to get spinning on a bunch of programs and stuff and things and whatever and miss out on the vibrant spirit that's saying, get out there and love your neighbor. How do I embody and express a centered trust in Christ to my neighbors, which is the person, by the way, right in front of me? How do I embody that to them? How how do I live that, that they will know what I truly believe? So that's the letter to the church in Thyatira. I feel like it finds a home here this morning. Yes? So challenging, so deeply challenging and encouraging because I can get distracted, it it is, um, so an example, I don't, I don't see the numbers, I don't pay attention to them, we have to turn in attendance numbers for our gathering, I don't see those, and I saw this week, I saw a posting from, for that, I'm like, oh, and then I'm like, oh, why are you awing, Wally? Because that number you saw wasn't all that big. And now you are playing that game. Uh, I do not see giving. I see a number budget. I don't see what people give. And I'm in the minority apparently as pastors who, do, I don't. Because I don't want to play that game. It's not good for my heart. Your worship is your worship. And how you give is between you and God, and you can share that however you want, but I'm not looking, because I want to love you because you're a child of God. So we're invited to be in community, to live as a community, and to stay faithful as a community of Christ followers and live this out. But my hope is certainly we would grow because we're loving people and we're inviting people to know that, to dig in, to follow that. It's not easy, though. It's challenging. People don't want to be challenged, necessarily. This is about how to grow and how to walk with Christ. It's not always comfortable. In fact, it's often really uncomfortable. But I also think it's the most beautiful good news way to live and i hope we will continue to walk into that and step into that I'd love to pray and then we'll sing and we'll reflect and then you will love your neighbor as yourself as we leave here the invitation will be all around you and in front of you gracious god we bless you for the invitation to gather as your body of the church It it is mind-blowing that we get to gather publicly as the church and worship you with our hearts and our souls and our strength and our song and our prayers. We We get to do this. But we don't do this just to have puffed up heads, but that so we can have expansive hearts that lead to moving feet and loving people who you have created taking care and stewarding the resources you've put before us and participating in the restoration, renewal, and reconciliation of all things. That, that, is, that is what we're about. So I bless you, God, for each one of the people that are here, that have gathered, and anyone that would hear They listen in the audio. They catch it on a video. Our hope, our prayer, my hope, my prayer is that they hear you, Holy One, speaking to them, drawing them to you that you are transforming their heart and calling them to a life of following you. May they say yes to that. May we say yes to that as a community, as a church, that we will daily, continually say yes to you in your ways and that we would live that out, that our neighbors would say, well, that right there, that's good news. We bless you, God, for this time. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus.